Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. They're finally catching up with the home of common sense, ladies and gentlemen. The newspapers this morning are filled with scientists, MPs, local councils, all demanding an end to the 10pm curfew in particular and the lockdown in general. After weeks and weeks of telling them that it's time for the government to take a different tack, the rest of the world appears to be catching up with the Independent Republic. Who knew? More than 4,000 doctors and medical experts have signed a global declaration uh, which is calling for a more compassionate approach that would let more and more people return to a much more normal life. Even as Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon up in Scotland prepared to tighten restrictions, it seems the sensible people are finally having their say. Last night, a rebellion in Parliament against the rule of six failed, but another is planned against the 10pm hospitality curfew next week. Surely the dam has now been breached and the government will have to change their strategy in line with what the country wants. Boris Johnson said yesterday that he's fed up to the back teeth of this virus. He's fed up with the way our lives have been altered and he's fed up with the way he has to keep putting restrictions on. Well, there's an easy answer, Prime Minister. Take him off, for heaven's sake. So we want to hear from you. Make your feelings known. Write to your MP and call me to tell me what you're seeing, what you're hearing and what you are doing because you are, of course, the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. 0344 499 1000. We'll kick things off this morning with William Clouston from the SDP, the only political party that's come out properly and officially against the lockdown as part of their policy. Coming up later on, we're also joined by archaeologist and historian Neil Oliver from north of the border as we await the latest announcements from the SNP. It looks as though he is about as confused as everybody else is about the rule of six, the rule of five. How many people can you get in your house? How many people can you get in your garden? When can you go out? When can you stay in? Uh, you know, it's like that song by David Bowie, isn't it? 0344 It's PMQs today as well. So we'll be speaking to our political correspondent, Charlotte Ivers, down in Westminster. Keir Starmer has said precisely nothing about any of the lockdown measures. Let's see if he takes today's opportunity to do so. And top chef Ramon Blanc will be here as well to talk about apples. Why ours are the best in the world, apparently. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Is it any wonder? It's Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
And so this morning we are reading about 4,000 separate scientists, people in the medical business, people who have seen the damage and the terrible, terrible toll uh, that these lockdown measures have taken, not just in this country, but all over the world, all over the planet. Because over in France, in Paris, they've locked down the bars again. They've shut them all down. In Scotland, there's talk of that happening. Nicola Sturgeon is running slightly scared, I think, uh, of the pub industry because they've basically said, look, if you lock us down again, we are out of business, not just for now, but forever. And the same goes for uh, what's going on down here. Boris Johnson uh, has been asked by local councils now to give them more powers to do more localised lockdowns, even though, as I've said to you before, local lockdowns don't actually work because uh, the infection rate seems to double in quite a lot of the areas where local lockdowns have happened. All this nonsense about people not doing as they're told is exactly that. Complete and utter nonsense. It's not our fault. Uh, that the government has not done this the right way around. It's not our fault, as Matt Hancock would have us put it, uh, that cancer patients are not getting treated because of us. It's because of the NHS, for heaven's sake. Get it sorted out. You're the health secretary. Matt Hancock is becoming more and more uh, of a pedant, becoming less and less of a helpful minister and becoming more and more autocratic as time goes on. Let's talk to William Close, the leader of the Social Democratic Party, who came out some weeks ago, uh, have always talked a lot of common sense and said that they were against the lockdown. William, very good morning to you. Morning, great to be back. Yeah, thanks for talking to us again. It seems as though the, 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 the tide is turning slightly. It seems to me like there's enough people now to start pushing the government towards a more sensible approach. Uh, that's true. I think the tide is turning uh, slowly. I think what we've witnessed um, on, a, on a global scale, actually, is, is just a, a monumental policy error, uh, something which has been a sort of synchronised policy error all around the world. And this government's uh, joined in. And slowly but surely, people are re- realising the long-term consequences. And I think you only have to go back to February, March, when it all started, uh, to ask yourself a basic question. Where, where was the cost-benefit analysis? Um, to have a look at the cost of lockdowns. Yeah, uh, They've been making policy, basically, on what I would describe as a, a fundamentally irresponsible basis, uh, because they've never seen the bigger picture. They've only seen the, the COVID picture. Um, and uh, it is literally a, a policy error, which I think could have generational consequences. Mm. But I still think there's time to pull it back from the brink, William, if they do the right thing, rather than doing the wrong thing. Because all they have to now do is look at what the information is in the round, not just what the scientists are telling them, not just what Valance yeah. uh, and Witty are telling them, but what the business community is telling them, what these other medical people are telling them. I mean, these, these doctors who have written um, this global declaration are very highly regarded doctors. They're not quacks. They're not kind of, you know, loonies from, from YouTube. You know, these are people who are highly respected, highly academic, and who'd see mm. that there is a much bigger medical problem now than the virus itself. Yeah, there's always been um, an alternative view on the science and on the policy, policy prescriptions, you know, how you tackle the, the virus. There always has been. Mm. The trouble is it hasn't been represented on the government's committees. So you've had you know, the Oxford group and others uh, criticising government policy from the start. But part of the problem, and I have to say this is a major problem uh, in this country particularly, is that uh, political opposition to these measures, these mistakes, uh, has been subcontracted out mm. to a series of academics. Right. So, you know, it's actually fallen to them to challenge the government on what they're doing. And meanwhile, um, every time the government's uh, implemented another uh, stage of its stop-go policy, its sort of haphazard, sharp-turns uh, policy, every single time, 
the Starmer uh, and the Lib Dems and the SNP have tried to gold plate it. So they haven't challenged any of it at any stage. The only real challenge has been from one or two journalists like Hitchens and Toby Young and other people and some uh, some experts. So we our political class has utterly failed, mm. I think. Well, I think that's true. I mean, Sir Keir Starmer, you would have thought, uh, would have got behind, say, Andy Burnham's suggestions from Manchester or some of the other local mayors and local councils that are asking for greater local powers to be more specific about lockdowns. Because what we do know uh, is that an awful lot of the local lockdowns have not only not worked, but they've seen increases in the infection rate while being locked down. Yeah, I'm afraid the evidence for lockdowns overall is just pretty poor. Mm. Um you can't really deduce uh, efficacy from lockdowns on the national data. If you compare the countries that have had very harsh lockdowns, like Spain and others, uh, their, their death rates are very similar to those that haven't. And we've been arguing particularly, I mean, at the start of this, Mike, we, were, um, we gave the government the benefit of the doubt. It's yeah. a new disease. And we didn't criticise. And there was a sort of, you know, a sense of we're all in it together. Yeah, and I think we were right to do that, by the way. Yeah, no, I think so. And I don't regret doing so at all. But as it becomes, as, you, as policy lurches, they have this three-week lockdown, which became a seven-week lockdown. And then they had a massive enthusiastic reopening where they're actually bribing people, paying people to go out. And then suddenly they slam the brakes on and the hospitality industry doesn't know where to turn, literally. I mean, you know, and I see New York um, are implementing uh, a series of local lockdowns. And bar owners and restaurant owners, they only, in that city, they only opened up in last week. Yeah. And they were closed. And a lot of them didn't bother opening up. You just can't run a society like this. What they're missing is basically that this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. They've got to implement a series of things that we can keep a hold of long term, which actually might just get back to the, the four things which are shield the vulnerable, mm. um, isolate if you're ill, wash, and distance. And those four things you can do pretty much forever. Mm. Because it, look, it's an interesting sort of state of affairs when you look at, for example, I, th- I was looking in one of the papers this morning, the lowest rated places in Britain. Most of them seem to be in the south of England. The highest rated seems to be in the north. Something similar happened in America, where at first New York was in a bad way and Florida mm. wasn't. Um, and then it went sort of flipped the other way around. So the virus seems to travel I'm not quite sure how that works, but I'm sure that the scientists could explain it one way or another. It's nothing to do with necessarily um, the way that communities live. It just seems to geographically move around. I mean, the southwest, I'm told now, is practically virus free and certainly parts of the southeast are as well. London cases are going up, but yet nobody in London has died of COVID for an entire week. Yeah, I mean, certainly the seasonality is a massive factor in this, Mike, Um, and in the United States, the thing that explains the steepness of the curves in the Northeast, mm. as opposed to say Arizona or Florida, is is climate actually fundamentally. Yeah. So they would have. I mean, it's almost like being in a different country. Yeah. Um, so the the shape of the curve would be entirely different. I mean, obviously, you know, certain areas of the country are having more more difficulty. But it, and what I what I despair of is is the lack of responsibility taken by government um, to the effects of what they're implementing. It's as if, you know, 20%, there's always this false dichotomy in the debate between lives and livelihoods. But what they don't seem to realise is that that destroying livelihoods costs lives. That's that's the point. They're missing. I was talking about it. 
And when you see, as I say, Matt Hancock coming out and saying basically, well, we won't be able to do cancer care for people if nobody does what they're told. I mean, I find that quite offensive apart from anything else. Well, it, it, it's a, it's appalling. Some of the rhetoric, um, you know, some of the rhetoric against young people, against students. You saw this very recently. Students go back to university and they're mm. being demonized for spreading it. And again, I, I'm sorry, but I think they've just got the, the, the broad policy wrong. Um, you know, uh, some academics have made the point that actually if students attended lectures, socialized throughout the entire first two terms, we may get to a situation in this country where by March or April, very large numbers of the undergraduate population would have actually, you know, the virus would have passed through and they wouldn't be there. Um, they'd, have, they'd have built up some immunity and they wouldn't be there to spread it after that. And I think actually that's a far better um, result, a far better aim, actually, yeah. than, than shielding. I mean, basically, Mike, they're, they're shielding the people that aren't vulnerable. And again, it's, it's, it's a point which has been made, you know, and it hasn't been the official opposition. Um, it's been a point that's been made by groups like us for them, uh, complaining about the policy in relation to schools and children. Uh, but not not by any official opposition, which is which is uh, appalling. No, well, Keir Starmer said absolutely nothing this morning about lockdown. He said nothing about it really throughout the lockdown, other than that he support, fully supports the government, while then slagging them off for not doing anything right. And it seems to me that in universities uh, and in the, in the halls of residence, the lockdown isn't working anyway, because if the spreading of the disease is still going on, and it's very high in places like Sheffield and Newcastle, I understand, you know, everybody's mm. getting it anyway. Yeah, I mean, kettling 700 or 800 students in halls of residence is sure to spread it throughout that population. Mm. But they're, again, they're missing the point. Um, it's not. It's actually a benefit if it's if the virus spreads through the undergraduate population. I mean, you'd be in a better position, as I say, in April if that happened. Mm. But the broader picture is never seen. I mean, and the and the and the there isn't any opposition basically beyond. As I say, journalists and other experts. Yeah. Well, I bet um, you any money today, Keir Starmer on PMQs, the Prime Minister's questions, will go banging on again about the test and trace failings. And that doesn't appear to work at all. I'm not even sure if there's any point in doing it, to be honest, because, you know, telling people to isolate themselves when they might not even have any clue that they've got COVID and might never have COVID um, is a nonsense, particularly if they're going to lose their jobs over it. Yeah, and and the, and the losing of the jobs and the, the you know the loss of your tax base uh, are going to have very very long term uh, implications. I have to say, one of the things that's disappointed me, and I suspect, is one of the reasons for the policy being implemented, is that the certainly if you look at the councils in the northeast of England that decided to lock down recently, the policymakers that were responsible for that, uh, which are basically the, the 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 leaders of those councils and in particular the officers that give them the advice. Are pretty much insulated from that, from the effects of that advice. Certainly in the in the short term. Mm. I think probably in the long term, they may find out that the you know destruction of your tax base is probably not good if you want good services. So there's a lot to come, uh, you know, down the line there. Mm. But basically, people uh, are making policy that aren't having any of the consequences, and I think it partly explains what's happened: um, a complete failure to understand that there's anything else on the other side of the net and to take responsibility mm. for it. That's what we've seen. I mean, but it is, it is changing. I mean, I, I do detect, you know, in the last couple of months, um, you know, there has been more uh, opposition to this. Mm. And certainly, the, I, I haven't seen it so much in the polling evidence yet. But by, I, mark my word, Mike, by next summer, when you've got the, some of the full effects and the insolvencies have been through and you've got another million unemployed, 
people will be saying, actually, I think the lockdown stop-go policy was really very yeah. foolish. I think we'll see a change in government policy. I'm going to put, put myself out on a limb here before Christmas. I think they are frightened now of going too far. We've seen in Scotland Nicola Sturgeon already taking a step back from the brink because two days ago there were some very heavy hints that she was going to give them a two-week um, you know, circuit breaker lockdown, which would have meant yeah. very little apart from the fact that it would have killed off the pub industry. Many pubs that have just reopened, uh, many hospitality venues that have reconfigured themselves, and they would not take, they would not stand for it it looks now today that she's going to make an announcement this afternoon which is going to be less stringent than that she will be putting some more restrictions on but they won't be as bad so i think the common sense is is getting through i certainly sensed from uh, from rishi sunak's statement and boris johnson's statement yesterday that there is room for maneuver now they're not being quite so hard line boris saying you know i know people hate me i know people hate this i hate it i'm not keen on it you know we must find another way i think there's definitely a way through it yeah, I think that that's beginning to happen. Um, and, and I think Peter Hitchens predicted that by next summer, when all the co- real consequences come through, you know, everyone was saying, you know, I really, I really thought I was against it all along. Yeah, and you probably will see that, but it's been very slow. I think another thing, Mike, which is probably likely to happen is the steepness of the of the viral curve in the winter will be there because it's there anyway. I mean, more, you know, far, far more people will have, um, you know, pneumonia and flu anyway than will have COVID, I think. Yeah. You could even see the average fall. Well, that's already the case, isn't it? I mean, COVID did, yeah, not even, did not even figure, and I know we're talking about August, did not even figure in one of the top 10 causes of death in August. Mm. No, it will. I mean, and I think the the a lot of economists that have advised us have said actually that you, the the long range um, death rate, you know, the above the curve, uh, when when the year's out, actually will be below, slightly below, and you might end up with something like fifty thousand excess deaths. Mm. Uh, remember that in nineteen sixty nine, um, flu basically took eighty thousand to ninety thousand people in the UK, uh, and there wasn't any of the uh, the freak out. Yeah. The, well, know, I was a, I was a, I was a child then. I don't remember yeah. being terrified into uh, having to behave in a particular way. I don't even remember the fact that there was a flu uh, epidemic. No, um, you, you, I, I was too. I was four, but I don't, I don't really remember it. But, but the fact is, it was there, and it did claim more lives, I think, than than, than COVID will this year in the UK. Yeah. As I say, I think I, I, I just think going forward, when we're dealing with the long-term consequences of all this stuff which could last a decade, it's, it's sort of generational actually, uh, people will look at it and think, what, what on earth were they doing? And, and it's, it's policy based on panic. That's what they're going to... But it, it will, there'll be a lot of denial, Mike. There'll be a huge amount of denial and there'll be a huge amount of rhetoric that we, that we had no choice and all the rest of it. But actually, they did. It was a point um, that was made about, as you say at the start, about the sage committee mm. the sage committee had a particular view on this and there were others outside that committee that took a different one yeah and they wouldn't they wouldn't weren't prepared to change it let's have a read of this tweet just before we go that's from michael he says i was made redundant from the hospitality sector thanks to covid there's no jobs now in this sector due to continued restrictions i'm 52 too late to train as something else i've supported boris but this needs to end now let's get on with living and working and there'll be loads of people like michael um who you know it's all very well for boris to say, oh yeah we'll retrain everybody they can all work in the sort of you know wind farm sector oh really well that's going to be a bit more difficult to do than to say i suspect no i saw um johnson's statement yesterday and it was typical johnson not very much detail um some of the amounts of money that he was suggesting for uh, renewable energy were um almost token actually if you look at the grander scheme of things 
Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I just think we'll be living with this for years and years, unfortunately, and uh, there'll be a lot of denial. And meanwhile, as you say, people have, will lose their jobs and won't get back in. Business will be wrecked. And, you know, I mean, actually, the other point, Mike, is that it was the, what I've really objected to in this, because my party, the SDP, is a communitarian party. I know that people that are skeptical about lockdowns are considered libertarian. But there's a case, there's a good case, libertarian case in terms of freedom. But there's a massive communitarian case mm. against these indiscriminate lockdowns. And Oxfam did a, uh, published a report the other day which was estimating the amount of global hunger that will be caused by supply lines and things changing. And they actually estimated that 12,000 people globally could lose their lives mm. uh, as a result of hunger due to the lockdowns. The, we've got to wake up and start thinking about the consequences of what we do and the government has got to start taking responsibility for that. That's what we need. Yeah, absolutely right. William, thanks very much indeed, as ever, for talking to us. William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party, talks a great deal of common sense. It is about the community. Just because you want the lockdown lifted doesn't make you some kind of mad, you know, bulging-eyed maniac that wants to just go out and infect everybody with a terrible killer disease. It just means that you have more than a one-track mind. The problem with the government is it has a one-track mind. Its one-track mind is all about covid it doesn't look at the big picture. It doesn't look at the people like Michael who have been made redundant at the age of 52 and who can't retrain to do another job because he can't be employable at that age. He needs to get a job back in hospitality. If you lock it down even more than it is already, hospitality will cease to exist. It's a simple equation. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lots going on today. Neil Oliver's going to join us uh, at 11 o'clock. He wrote a fantastically funny uh, and rather sort of, uh, shall we say, confusing but deliberately confused piece uh, at the weekend in the Sunday Times about how he doesn't really know what the rules are anymore. Very similar to what I said last week where, you know, if I got off the train in Newcastle, I didn't know what I could do. You know, he's talking about, you know, he doesn't know. He's five, got five people in the family, three kids, him and his wife. He doesn't know who he can invite into the house as the sixth person. If you can have a sixth person, can they be from another household? Can they be from his family? Can they be uh, a sibling? Could they be a mother-in-law? Could they be a friend? Could they be a sports psychologist? Could they, you know, you just don't know, do you? Who are you going to invite into the house? I don't know. Uh, let's talk to Dr. Lawrence Gurlis, because this morning, the front page of the Daily Mail says, world's top scientists rage against the lockdown. Uh, and it's basically talking about this, um, uh, this letter that's been written or uh, what's being called a, a global declaration, which has been written, uh, not just to the British government, but to lots of other governments and t saying, basically, you know, let's find another way. Dr. Lawrence, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Yes, no. I signed the, the, the yes, so I understand. declaration. I also was one of the 66 GPs who wrote to Matt Hancock about, you know, getting normal health care back to normal yes. and not, not over-prioritising COVID-19. Um, I feel quite strongly about this. I think it's nonsense to lock up university students. Uh, let them get the virus. Let them get some immunity. Uh, I haven't heard a single story of a, a university student being unwell in any way. Mm. Um, and, and keeping them locked up is, is nothing other than cruel. And we should try to get life back to normal with some restrictions, some mask wearing, some social distancing, maybe let the theatres and cinemas reopen with adjustments, and maybe sporting venues. Um, I think being in an open stadium is actually not that bad. My mm. concern as someone who, who goes to football matches is the crowds getting in and getting out. That's right. when you're huddled up with other people. 
Um, and so if we could stagger um, attendance and departure times, I think the sports stadiums could reopen. Yeah. Bear in mind they're open-air events anyway. Well, of course. I mean, this is why some of the, the measures that have already been taken, for example, Sadiq Khan cancelling the New Year fireworks, is a really stupid idea, it seems to me, because it's one of the few um, events that you could actually properly control. Now, his yeah. argument will no doubt be, oh, yeah, but we don't want loads of people on the tubes. Well, have you been on the tubes lately? I mean, there's quite a lot of people travelling on them now. Yeah. And basically what yeah. you could do is have a space around the firework display, which normally would say, hold, I don't know, 50,000 people, and say we're only going to allow 20,000 in and sell yeah. tickets to it. People buy the tickets. If they haven't got a ticket, they can't get in. Simple. Yeah. You know, why cancel event. it? It's an open-air yeah. event. Why cancel yeah. it? It doesn't make any sense. No, I think we've got to start sending the signals. I, I, I sympathise with the government. I think the government have been cornered by certain elements of the of the mainstream media. They can't... Boris Johnson can't stand up tomorrow and say, we're going to relax uh, the guidelines, we're going to ease the lockdown, we're going to let people catch the virus and protect the elderly, mm. which is what we should be doing. Yeah. He can't say that because he will be hammered. Um, he'll be saying he's he's killing people. So he's got to react in this way. So I have a lot of sympathy for all governments. And bear in mind, you know, they're all behaving the same way. Yeah. We're hearing about lockdowns in Madrid and Paris and so on. So it's not unique to us. But I do firmly believe that we should treat this as another form of flu, mm. which is dangerous for people 60 to 80 to 90, um, but that other people should be uh, allowed to develop their immunity. Let's get some herd immunity and let's wait for the vaccine and deal with it as the, as we deal with flu every year. Yeah, well, don't tell Facebook that because they removed Donald Trump's uh, tweet or, or Facebook post about the fact that it was a lot no worse than flu because they said it wasn't true. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it may be, it may in the early stages back in March have been more contagious than flu and more dangerous for the elderly. Either the virus has mutated or the viral loads are lower, but right now more people are dying of flu than are dying of COVID-19. Yes. Right. We have to get that into perspective. Right. And you say, Dr. Lawrence, that uh, the, the Boris Johnson and the government are in, in sort of the, the thrall of the, of the mainstream media, but they're also in the thrall of their, science, their own scientific advisors. The SAGE Committee, you know, Messrs. Yeah. Witty and Valance, yeah. uh, and even Neil Ferguson, who's still part of the Imperial College yeah. kind of modelling team. I mean, how is it possible that these doctors are not like you guys who have signed the letter to Matt Hancock and like the 4,000 who have signed this declaration? I think it's from their point of view, they're preparing for the the, the, the Royal Commission or the, the inquiry that's going to, have to take place next year. Listen, if they predict 50,000 cases a day and we end up with 15,000, um, they're going to say, well, we put the measures in place. If it were the other way around, mm. if they predicted 15 and we got 50,000, they'd be in trouble. So it, they're really um, cornered by the fact that they're, scientific advisors and they have to advise yeah. worst case scenarios but if this was something that was only affecting say people's inability to go on holiday right if that was the case then you could understand that you know maybe you've got a situation whereby you know they're preparing themselves so that they don't get into trouble at some later inquiry but this is affecting people's livelihoods affecting people's health yeah. affecting yeah. people's lives Absolutely. their businesses it's far too serious to be able to just to be, say oh well you know we're just doing what we should be doing jobs worth yeah yeah no I, I i agree i think someone someone somewhere between the politicians and the government maybe it's down to us the the, the doctors the gps the hospital specialists to have a middle road and say come on let's be sensible now we've done the right things let's gradually ease things up 
we'll monitor the numbers. Can we please only test those with symptoms? We shouldn't be doing random tests on, on thousands of asymptomatic people because you're, you're picking up fragments of RNA, which doesn't mean infection at all. Um, so maybe that's what the Great Barrington Declaration is all about. Mm. That, that that's where the middle road is between the politicians and the scientists. Um, that common sense will prevail. Yeah. I mean, Thanks it seems as though it seems as though we need somebody to kind of lead us out of this, right? Whether it's yeah. doctors, whether it's another country's government which does it first, and then we look at that and go, "Oh, that seems to be a good idea." It just seems to me, and I've been saying this till I'm blue in the face, that you know, no matter what the government does, the con- the continued spread of the disease is something that you can predict with a fair amount of uh, certainty. You know that it's going to spread. You yeah. know that more people are going to get it. The question is you know, whether that should affect everything or whether it should only affect some things. Yeah, and we've got to make sure that people don't die in large numbers from this. So, yeah, we've got, and that's by prioritising. And, yeah, and, and that's not happening, is elderly. it? It's not happening, no. No. Uh, we, we, it's a blanket uh, uh, cover on all age groups. I, I really, as I say, university students, it's completely pointless um, having university students locked up in their halls of residence when they're not even getting ill, let alone going to hospital. Right. I mean, what about the final sort of ignominy, really, of all of this? Um, your letter to Matt Hancock, would, are you expecting to get a reply to that? No, I, well, not that I've seen one yet. Um, yeah, I've been in touch with the other doctors yeah. who signed that letter, and as yet, nothing at all. Mm. So we'll, we will see. And what are you basically suggesting to him in that letter? What are you asking It's for? similar... It's it's more focused on the fact that the health service should get back to normal, that mm. we shouldn't be delaying uh, treatment of cancer patients. Uh, I'm concerned particularly about mental health of, of people and particularly university students. Bear in mind, your first term at university is emotionally very stressful anyway, without the fact you've just gone through the A-level uh, situation and now you're locked up in your halls of residence, staring at the screen and getting food dropped outside your door. Mm. And often not enough food or the wrong food. Yeah, right. So I, I am concerned about mental health and I, I'm concerned about cancer treatments. And that's what the letter to Matt Hancock was mm. focusing on. And why does he keep referring to Public Health England after he's disbanded it? This has been bothering me all week. But he keeps talking about Public Health England. I'm like, I thought he'd get away with them. Well, it, uh, doesn't it just exist by another name? Under, under yeah, but he keeps actually new, calling it yeah. Public Health England. Well, he was in the Commons this week yeah, referring yeah, to, you yeah. know, uh, problems with Public Health England. I'm like, well, yeah, wait a minute, you yeah. got rid of that. Yeah, well, you know, I, look, I'm glad I'm not I a wish we'd get rid of him. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not a politician. That's all I can say. <laughs> Dr. Lawrence Gurlis, thank you very much indeed. GP at Same Day Doctor. Also signatory uh, to this declaration which has been made um, to not just this government, but to governments around the world. Top epidemiologists at Oxford, Harvard and Stanford uh, are calling for focused prevention on the sort of problems that we're having in this country because everybody now accepts, apart from, of course, the people running everything, that the way they're going is the wrong way. We heard from uh, Chris Whitty, you might remember last week, saying, oh, things are going in the wrong direction. Well, anything's going in the wrong direction, you lot, the rest of us, all know what the common sense uh, solution actually is. And that is to not do anything ridiculously reckless, but to allow businesses to flourish, to allow places to be open beyond 10 o'clock at night, to allow hotels to be open, to allow people to travel across the world and to just have better screening, to have better testing at airports. You know, there are ways of doing it. 
they're doing it in lots of parts of the world. I mean, when we say that, oh, everybody's doing it the same way, that's not actually true. In the Middle East, for example, you can't go shopping uh, until you've had a temperature check. And the temperature checks have run very, very well. Same in Singapore. In Germany, where they've got very low number of deaths, they've done it in a very different way. Sweden, as we've heard before, which I've never said uh, was necessarily the, the greatest way to go. But it's seemingly that the country is in a better place than we are. And where there's big infection rates in Spain, in France and in uh, this country, the question is, how dangerous is that going to be? And nobody seems to be asking that question. But we are. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I was having a similar conversation last week about the rules and how the rules have become now so uh, ridiculously complex that nobody really knows what they are. I was talking to John Rental one day and I explained to him I didn't know what would happen if I got off a train in Newcastle. Would I be able to go to a, a bar? And he said it's perfectly straightforward. He says everybody knows what the rules are. And then he said, well, you can't go into a bar with somebody else. You can't meet somebody on the train and go into a bar with them, but you can have a drink with them on the train. I said, what about if I go to the bar and sit outside? He said, I don't know. So there we are. He doesn't know. Neil wrote a piece at the weekend in the Sunday Times in which he said there are five people in his family. He doesn't really know if he was to invite somebody else into his house as the sixth person in the rule of six, who that sixth person would be. Let's talk to him now to see if he's figured it out. Neil, a very good uh, morning to you. Uh, hello. I mean, yeah, I'm, just about, I'm just about driving myself doolally up here. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know which way is up anymore. Yeah. So that's a fact. No, I know. I mean, I was laughing, chuckling when I was reading it because it's exactly what I was kind of articulating last week that, you know, and the, and it's, it has a sort of rhythm to it, the way you wrote it as well. You know, it's like, can I do this? Can I do that? Who can I do that with? Or can I not do it with that person? Can we get that person in? I mean, it is kind of comical now. Yeah, it's... I suppose for the people that are doing the the making of the rules, and that's their job, and they're doing that all day every day. Mm. They can you know, that's their preoccupation, and they can stay on top of it because it's all they think about for reasons we can understand. Mm. But for for everybody else who's trying to get on with whatever they're trying to get on with, it's in the nature. If it, rules of a game, you know, once you learn the rules of a game, that's you know the rules of football, the rules of Scrabble, then you know where you are, and you can. You can live within that. But the fact that the rules keep changing, mm. and people have got too much else to be getting on with, means that at any given moment, you don't know if you've missed a rule change. So at any given moment, you could be in the wrong yeah. quite innocently, just because what you thought, what you were allowed to do yesterday or last week is now strictly verboten. Yeah. Uh, you didn't keep up with the, with the latest broadcast from whoever or wherever. And there you are, you're offside. Right. You didn't know it. Right. Well, I mean, when you get to these ridiculous situations where a burger bar in London uh, gets fined a thousand quid or whatever it is because they took too long to put the salad on the burger. And by the time they served it up, it was four minutes past ten. 
and suddenly there's a COVID marshal they're handing out a fine. And you go, well, this has reached literally idiotic proportions. Uh -huh. we, you know, we've been uh, coming and going from, uh, you know, restaurants and places around Stirling, uh, hospitality places, and they're all, they're all tearing their hair out. Yeah. Uh, you know, apart from anything else, the, the 10 o'clock cutoff, uh, to some extent, it sounds it sounds all right in a way. You know, well, well, ten o'clock. But the reality for people running restaurants is that they've got to start getting rid of people really by about quarter past nine. Yeah. And it's at precisely the point in the evening when it, when it comes to you know making money and maximising your profit in that industry that as people have loosened up and they're thinking about having that other bottle of wine or yeah. ordering a round of brandies or whatever. Yeah. That, that those places depend on that to, as the, as a very uh, rich. Hour between ten and eleven, or between ten and midnight, or whatever, and now they've got to be hustling people out the door, and they've got to be slipping the bowl on the inside of the door yeah. at one minute to ten. Right. So in reality, their their uh, their earning window it starts to stop at about nine o'clock. Uh, and, well, and also to... their bookings window starts to stop at around about eight fifteen because they can't take any more bookings after that, really. And we've got, you know, we're, we were thinking about uh, getting the kids away for a, for a, for a week away uh, during the, the second half of the school holiday yeah. up here. Uh, and we made some tentative arrangements for that. But uh, as you say, yesterday or earlier in the week, suddenly the spectre was there of, of a, a circuit breaker lockdown, whatever mm. on earth that means, mm. whatever effect it might have. And we thought, well, well, that's the ball up on the slates again. Right. And now we now we don't know, you know, because if you're going to go away and do a self catering thing, you've got to think about things like maybe getting a Tesco shop booked, right. you know, to deliver. Because even if you get to the place you want to go to, all the restaurants and pubs might be locked down or shut down. So you need to be self sufficient. Yeah. Well, oh, we're, I mean, we're the yeah. same. I mean, we we went to Turnberry at last Christmas, which was great. You know, first time we'd been away really for Christmas properly, where we didn't do the Christmas thing at home, and we thought maybe we pop up there for half term. But I, I actually thought to myself. To be honest, I'm not sure if I went to Scotland whether I might get stuck there and Nicola Sturgeon might somehow close the border. I mean, that's how mad it is. I, I, this thing about the, being handled as a four-nation situation, when, when we talked about that way back, I, I, I understood the, the, the thinking there. But I think increasingly the fact that you get, that not only are the, are the rules changing all the time, but as you move, if you're in Scotland or if you're in England or if you're in Wales or presumably if you're in Northern Ireland or whatever, there's, there's variations within variations. Uh, and, and this fact that you've maybe caught something that's come out of Westminster, you've maybe heard something that Matt Hancock has said or, or Boris Johnson has said, but you've then got to cross-reference it up here mm. with, what, with what the First Minister here might say next right. or what you've already said that you haven't heard. Right. It's, it's a Gordian knot of complexities that I, I just don't see how... Everyone's going to end up getting caught out because nobody except the people setting the rules are spending 24 hours a day keeping up with it. No. And in the case of Miss Ferrier, of course, the SNP MP, um, oh, she, she may or may not have known the rules, but she certainly broke pretty much all of them. That's, well, that, that's just another example of the kind of thing that makes people, reasonable people, have absolutely no faith mm. in authority. You get one, she's the latest one to stumble into that tar pit. Mm. Um, but it's been one person after another uh, who would ought to have been an exemplar of best behaviour that just demonstrably did whatever they felt like doing in the moment because of their own personal circumstances, which is essentially the point of yeah. 
That's, that is the problem in a nutshell. You know, she was running variables through her head, making decisions about what she thought she had to do for her. Mm. And that, and that meant she, that the consequence of that was she just broke a stream of a whole string of rules. Yeah. And now, you know, the, and the, the impression up here is like she's still in position. She's still getting a salary. Yeah. And that just seems to happen across the board. Nobody, nobody actually seems to be uh, liable, or none of the people in authority seem to be liable for the consequences of their actions. No. Meanwhile, some poor Joe out in the street that you know that talks to the wrong person or spends too wrong in the wrong place. You know, could end up with a £10,000 fine. Yeah. Well, I got on the tube today um, because I'm going to uh, take my producer to the pub to help celebrate her birthday, right? So I thought, I'm not going to bring the car. And as I walked into the tube station, I saw a new sign. And there's a pillar. And it's a quite a big tube station. So there's no, it's not a, there's a narrow space or anything. And it says, uh, please do not stand here. This is for your own safety. I'm like, I immediately <laughs> just wanted to stand there for a minute and see what happened, you know? Ah, uh, I've got uh, the thing that keeps coming back to me at the, at the moment. I keep, I, I don't know if you've you've heard that thing, that story about how uh, in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, his he doesn't matter in the story. Mm. If you take Indiana Jones out of the story, uh, the Nazis get uh, Marion's necklace. They dig in the right place. Right. They get the Lost Ark. They take it to the island. They open it, and the wrath of God deals with them. Right. That's what would have happened if Indiana Jones wasn't there. Right. So in the film, Indiana Jones is just running about getting in the way, <laughs> looking heroic, right. shooting people, getting into fights, jumping in and out of tombs. Right. But it doesn't matter. And I feel as if the, the leaders, Nicholas Sturgeon, Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, and that, they're like they're like Indiana Jones, but not as good looking right. and not as well dressed. Right. They're just getting in the way. And it feels like in the meantime, the virus is going to run its course. Nature's going to take its course. There's that you mentioned that that uh, that letter, that another letter that's been signed by whatever four thousand scientists, yeah. and some of them are saying herd immunity is is like night follows day. It's inevitable. They say some of them. It's like gravity. You mm. can't avoid herd immunity. Now others of them are saying, well, well, no, you can't necessarily rely on 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 herd immunity, and and just because you've had the disease once doesn't mean that you can't catch it again. So yeah. you've got that split decision. But if, if those ones are right, that we're going to end up with herd immunity as an inevitability, you know, I mean, some, some of the virologists are saying that any virus, it doesn't want to be lethal. Mm. Because if you kill your host, you're homeless. Yes. So it's in the interest of a virus to become non-lethal because all they really want is somewhere warm and moist to live. Mm. They just need a, a happy host. And so it, in all likelihood, as I understand it, given a couple of years, COVID will be non-lethal and we'll all just have to live with it the way we live with yeah. so many other and we might And we might all have it in the same way that we would all have it if we got a vaccination, you know, because we were told way back at the beginning that probably everybody will get it and that the reason for the original lockdown was to make sure that we didn't all get it at once and people didn't overwhelm the health service. I understand that logic. I get all that. But now... When we're hearing that lockdowns actually don't work, in fact, they increase in infection rates in some areas. When we hear that students being locked down in their res in their halls of residence is actually not stopping it spreading. You know, clearly you can't stop it spreading. It's, I mean, that's the only sensible conclusion to come to. Yeah, it's, well, it is. It's the Indiana Jones factor. Yeah. The virus seems to be, it, it's running through its own, uh, it's, it's taking its own course. And as you said, as we were told at the beginning, they had to flatten the curve or the 
or the so that so that we didn't all so that all the illness and and death wasn't all happening on the same day. Mm. But at no point did anybody say those people wouldn't get ill and die. Right. They just didn't want them all to get ill and die in the same week. Right. But it would overwhelm the National Health Service. And gradually, whether you like it or not, until they get this fabled vaccine. Now, that's a that's a leap of faith, will yeah. they? And if so, when? Right. But until they do, people are gradually going to come in contact with the virus. And for whatever reasons, with those people's immunities or their underlying health conditions or whatever, or their age, they're going to get ill and die. You know, nobody nobody ever said when they talked about flattening the curve that it was going to save lives. It was just going to stop loss of life happening all mm. at once and overwhelming the National yeah. Health Service. Well, I still <laughs> think that the, the, the main kind of... Um, shall we say, sort of driving force was those scenes from northern Italy, which came out right at the beginning, where you could see bodies piling up in, in hospital corridors, you know, rooms full of the dead and, and lorries having to take them away in the middle of the night because no politician, as I said at the time, could probably survive that in this country. Nobody would want to see that and it would be horrifying. So they just desperately wanted to make sure that there was no overcrowding. And there never was. I mean, those Nightingale hospitals were never used. Yeah, and this... This thing, I, I, I keep on going back over this idea about save the NHS. For, in the event of a, a national health emergency, what is the NHS for? Right. It's, it's like people that keep the plastic covers on their couch rather than use it, <laughs> you, rather than enjoy it. At what point are you going to take the covers off and use right. this thing in the way that it's intended? It, what Save the NHS for what? It's like if you had a, a crisis in, of, of faith and, and, and a, a, a religion might say, well, let's just make sure all the church buildings are in good neck yeah. and never in the congregation. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it. My, 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 my analogy to that is don't run any trains in case they crash or, or become overcrowded. Or, or wear out. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't run the trains because the wheels might get worn out. Right. What, what is this? What are you saving? If you've got a national health service that people have been paying into for generations that, that absorbs and needs billions of pounds all the time, mm. if we're going to have it, if there's, when else are you going to use it? Right. Possibly to the point of destruction, if needs be. Yeah. But in the case of a, of a national, a global health emergency. Yeah. But you but see, I've always, I've always thought, Neil, I've always thought, Neil, that these organisations like the Chief Medical Officer's Office, Public Health England, they've been working towards this for a while. You know, they've tried this kind of preventative medicine, as they call it, but which is actually telling you how to live your life. You know, don't smoke, don't drink too much, don't get too fat, don't be a drain on the health service. Well, get stuffed because I pay my taxes so that I can be a drain on the health service if I so wish. Yeah, you can't have it both ways. You no. can't charge people for something that you then don't let them use when they need it. Right, exactly. That, where's, the, where's the point of that? You either have to have something that, that's somehow free, that doesn't cost the user anything, in which case you can deny the user its use, mm. if you so wish. But if you're charging somebody for the existence of a service, yeah. you can't, at the very moment when they need it, say, I'm saving that for a rainy day. No, and they waste bucket loads of money. I heard a story from a friend of mine the other day who called me and said he's got a, uh, his girlfriend's Portuguese. Her father is going into hospital for uh, some kind of operation. He doesn't speak very good English, so they said that they'll get an interpreter for him. And she said, well, I can come in and uh, be the interpreter because he'd probably quite like me to be around anyway. They said, no, no, you can't do that because you're not COVID safe, right? However, they haven't uh, said that they're going to test the interpreter to make sure the interpreter's COVID safe and the interpreter costs £500 a day. And that's well, the NHS. 
Yeah, so uh, this this, uh, Ill this uh, the illogicality, if that's a word, of the way in which the uh, everything is being saved and spared around yeah. keeping the NHS for an emergency. Right. This is the emergency. Right. This is when we need it. And even if we used it to the point of destruction, well, at least we had it. Right. But, and, and then, and at the moment, I mean, obviously, there's this ridiculous, terrifying situation where. You know, you've got you've got um, health ministers saying you can't have cancer treatment until we get to a better place with COVID. Mm. You know, you and, and we're just having to face up to the reality that people are going to die of coronary disease. Yeah, die I mean, how is that acceptable? Uh, if it's not acceptable, if it, why, what's the point of saving lives if you're going to kill more lives by saving the other lives? Ah, uh -huh. yeah, it's this preoccupation with the one way of the one threat to life, right? As though the other threats to life have somehow been put on hold as well mm. and they haven't cancer and heart disease and depression and suicide and all the rest of the terrible ailments that befall mankind are still out there doing their thing unobstructed because we're, we're, we're all, we've all got to dedicate all resources all time and all attention crash the economy mm. periodically face lockdowns and all the rest of it just because of the arrival of the latest new virus yeah and viruses have been arriving in our, in amongst our species on planet Earth for since the beginning, but never before have we decided that this is the one for which everything else must be set aside. Mm. Economies must tank, people's livelihoods must be destroyed, people must be shut in their homes till depression gets the better of them. They have to die for want of every other available treatment because COVID is number one and will be number one until we've got a vaccine yeah. for it. I don't remember being asked to vote for that. No. Because I think also that it speaks to an arrogance that the political class has now kind of adopted, that they can stop things from happening or they can make things happen and everything sort of is done at their behest, if you like. You know, how about you just admit that you can't stop it happening and then you work from there rather than saying we must stop this from spreading because they can't stop it. No, evidently, evidently they can't. It would, it would appear that from the moment this virus appeared among us, that a certain number of people in every population were eventually going to be were, were going to be adversely affected by it. We're going to get those ones who, for whatever reason, couldn't survive it, were going to be harvested by it. Mm. And all of these efforts, lockdowns, the catastrophe for the economy, all the other uh, uh, collateral damage that's been done, we, we were supposed to absorb it because we were being reassured that if, they, if the authorities were allowed to do all the things they wanted to do, they could fix it, and they, they can. And it, I would my I would put good money on the fact that a couple of years from now, the death toll in every part of the world will be proportionally the same as everywhere else. Yes, I think COVID that's absolutely right. COVID nineteen, one way or another, with or without intervention, will have taken a given percentage of every population, and we will look back wide-eyed and shaky <laughs> at what we have done in the intervening period. Mm. You know, smoke and ruin of our economies and, and society, and we will not have been able to save a single life. Yes. We'll have delayed them, we'll have, we'll have caused them to happen at different times, but whatever it is, 0.1% of, of everyone's population will have been taken 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And there certainly seems to be evidence from what I can see of Nicola Sturgeon's kind of rowing back slightly today, which is what we think she's going to do from this circuit breaker lockdown. Right. That she's now frightened of doing that because it may be a step too far for her politically. She might also not be doing it because she can't afford to do it because they'd have to somehow come up with another furlough scheme and they don't really have the money for that. Um, but I'm wondering, the more pressure that gets put on by people like these 4,000 doctors to people like Boris Johnson, he will he will bend because he doesn't like being told he's unpopular. Uh, he doesn't like, you know, if enough people start telling him, he might just see the light. Yeah, it's impossible to tell now uh, whether decisions are being taken in light of the latest scientific understanding yeah. or whether they're being taken in the light of political expediency. Yeah. Now, of course, the politicians are saying, oh, no, we're doing this because the scientists, this is the latest, this is the news just in. But more and more of the population are thinking, no, this is political expediency. And this, is, this isn't just to do with COVID. It, you know, history has shown that if you keep on lying to people or if you keep on giving people duff information, eventually the people just don't believe anything they're being told. No. And once people don't believe anything they're being told, they're made kind of, uh, they're, they're denied uh, uh, action. They're unable to weigh up situations and make decisions for themselves mm. because they don't trust anything that they're being told. And whatever happens with COVID in the future, in the years ahead, it's going to be very, very difficult for politicians to regain any kind of credibility at all. Because this, this moving picture, that this shimmering mirage of, of the supposed solution to COVID has just left everybody dropping their shoulders and saying, oh, they're just, they're just making this up as they go yeah. along now. Well, they I'm... might not be, but that's the impression that's being, that's, that's the impression that more and more people are having. Mm. And in the future, the next time there's, there's anything to be handled and the politicians start telling us that, you know, this is how we should handle it, based on the COVID experience, too many people are going to say, yeah, he's just saying that. Yeah. Well, it doesn't help when the chief medical officer actually admits that he came out with some numbers which were meant to scare the public because it was a projection, except it wasn't in some ways a prediction, you know, and you go, what the hell are you talking about? You've just literally plucked a number out of the air, as was the rule of six plucked out of the air, as was the 10 p.m. curfew plucked out of the air. So you're you're not wrong to say that they are doing it as they go. I just don't think they've got a plan at all. You always, I mean, you know, your, your watchwords all the time are common sense. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And that that the population have been denied the application of their own common sense. And that politicians and the scientists, whoever they are, uh, have have taken it upon themselves to say, no, people's common sense is neither here nor there. Mm. We are going to lay down the law. That law is going to change on an hourly basis for days and weeks on end. Mm. But that is going to be how we handle this. So you take away agency from people. And it's your absolute, this common sense is absolutely vital at all times. And if the authorities had just acknowledged and, and worked with the common sense of the population, it was established very early on that the elderly were very, very vulnerable to this. And that people with, who were overweight or uh, diabetes or an underlying health or a heart condition, very, very vulnerable. And from the beginning, common sense would have empowered people to say, right, we'll look after them. Mm. We'll make sure those people are out of the way. They're out of harm's way. And the rest of us will get on with life so that we can keep earning the money and paying the taxes that keep the wheels on the bus. Yeah, absolutely. Instead, the scientists sent everybody home to their bedrooms for a year. Yeah. 
<laughs> and, now, and now we've got the situation that we've got. And ultimately, it's because they wouldn't allow people to use and apply common sense. And common sense has been keeping the species alive for 200,000 years. Mm. We're still here. I know. I know. Unbelievable stuff. Neil, listen, we've come to the end once again, but brilliant as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Neil Oliver, uh, of course, archaeologist, TV presenter of Coast, uh, a man that speaks an awful lot of common sense. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It is that time of the day uh, when we basically get together uh, with our experts and the people outside this uh, building who like to talk to us about things that we know a little about but would like to know more about. Today, it's homeschooling uh, with Pepe Martinez. We've spoken before. He's a London Blue Badge tour guide. Today's uh, piece of uh, information on homeschooling is all about Big Ben. Pepe, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for uh, for coming on again. You fascinated us the last time with uh, with with your knowledge uh, of, of of a London landmark. Big Ben is one of those things that I think we've forgotten about because we haven't seen it for such a long time. It's been covered up. I mean, I can see it behind you, which I'm very pleased to see. Um, but in actuality, uh, I remember the days when we used to have tourists in London. They'd come out of Westminster Tube and they'd look up at this kind of cardboard covered tower and wondering why they couldn't see it. It has been a tower of disappointment for visitors yeah. for three or four years now, mm. but we're all getting excited. They're slowly be beginning to peel it away, and so hopefully we'll see it again in its full glory. Yes, yeah. and they've basically been cleaning it, right? Yes, but also they found, I think the foundations were a little dodgy. So I think they've been shoring up the foundations as well, and they took the time to take the entire clock mechanism apart mm. and put the whole thing back together again. Right. And tell us about the history of Big Ben, because, of course, a lot of people think mis mistakenly that Big Ben is the tower, but it's actually the bell, isn't it? It is actually the bell. The tower used to be called uh, the tower or the clock tower, and it was renamed the Elizabeth Tower in 2012 for, for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. The great bell, uh, Big Ben, is um, they're not quite sure actually where the name comes from. They think that it might have been named after the Commissioner of Works at the time the bell was installed, mm. um, but they're not quite sure. And they also think it could have been named after a famous uh, boxer as well uh, of the time. Benjamin Kunt was his name. So it's one of those stories that's kind of been lost in history that's, today. Now, that's one I've never heard before. Interesting. I mean, and who would be responsible for picking, say, for example, his name out of a, out of a hat? Because they could have named it who after knows? loads of people. You know, quite often with these legends, nothing is ever written down. And mm. sometimes the legends come about years after the fact. So who knows? But they're both kind of quite nice stories to tell. They certainly um, are. However, the, the sad thing is when the bell was cast, it was the largest bell in Britain at the time, but the bell foundry closed down about three years ago. I don't know if you know that story, Mike. About I don't. The bell foundry. No, tell so me. The Whitechapel Bell Foundry has made some of the most famous bells in history, mm. including the Liberty Bell before okay. it was recast. Right. In Philadelphia, the Sydney Cathedral Bells, the Ottawa Parliament Bells. And do you remember for the Olympic Games, Bradley Wiggins rung that huge yes, bell? Yes, I do remember that, yeah. That was also made by the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. Oh, wow. And sadly, it was the business went under about three years ago, and it was sold to, to a developer who was trying to turn the building into a bell-themed hotel, would you believe? Wow. So, I mean, if you went to now make a bell the size of Big Ben, where would you go? Well, it's a very good question. I have to say, Mike, I'm not a bell expert, but there's, there's got to be, there's probably nowhere in Britain with those kind of facilities. Somebody might put me wrong on that, but I would probably have to go to the continent. So sadly, no more bells 
uh, no. the size of Ben could be made in this country. Now, obviously, uh, things are, uh, are not normal now that uh, we've got these COVID restrictions on. But there was a time when you could climb the the, the, the tower of, uh, of Big Ben and go all the way to the top. Do you think that's ever going to come back? I keep my fingers crossed. Um, I've done it twice. They give you earplugs to wear just uh, just in case you're a bit sensitive. Yeah. Um, about five years ago, the job came up to be become one of the tour guides to take people to the top of the tower. Mm. I've heard on the grapevine there are plans to put an elevator, a lift in to make it more accessible, right. which kind of suggests that they're going to be opening for tours once again. Yes, otherwise it's 334 steps, I understand. Also, I believe it stopped once, Big Ben. I believe, yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I, I think it was also stopped during the First World War. They stopped it during the Second World War as well. I think the tower's been hit by lightning before. So this this idea that it's only ever been stopped once in history is not quite accurate. Okay. But of course, it is one of the iconic symbols of Britain. Yes. I mean, I'm I'm looking at a piece of info here that says it stopped at 10:07 p.m. on the 27th of May 2005 probably because of an extremely hot temperature of 31.8 degrees Celsius. Now, we've had hotter days than that since then. We have. We have. I mean, you never know with these kind of things whether we get the full truth about these things. Mm. I mean, it is still using the original Victorian mechanism from 1858. So chances are, if you're that old, 160 years old, (laughs) you might occasionally need a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit yes, of a spruce. I suppose okay. so. And when uh, it was it was kind of unwrapped slightly, I seem to remember within recent memory, because I, I remember looking up and seeing that there was all these kind of interesting, um, almost heraldic symbols, which seemed to represent the different countries of the UK. Yes. Yeah, so just before lockdown, just before COVID struck, they did actually start taking down the scaffolding. And they also announced that They've, they took off all the layers of paint that had been put over the numbers and the letters on the face and found out that, in fact, they were not black as always has always been thought. The original colour scheme was a very, very dark blue. Mm. So the image behind me and the image on the screen slightly out of date now. But in fact, if you look up, if the next time you're going by and you've got good eyesight, it's a very, very nice dark blue colour now. So right. the colours are Okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's very much a landmark of 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 the of the not just the, the city of London but of the UK and of Europe really, isn't it? And the Houses of Parliament, beautiful building, the Palace of Westminster. Um there's a lot of talk of 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 it not really being fit for purpose anymore, but they can't really do too much to it, can they in terms of improving the inside of it because it is like a rabbit warren i'm sure you've been in there many times as i have and i mean it's it's in a pretty bad way i mean the plumbing is is awful you know the the the, the air conditioning is terrible you know the corridors are narrow um i can't really see what they can do about any of that well the only thing is for everybody to move out and to close the building down and that's one of the plans i believe it's going to take about five years to do the entire project yeah. and cost last estimate was more than three billion pounds but it is an icon of Britain, mm. and I think we it, we would be a lesser nation without it. So I think it needs to needs to be done. Oh, definitely. I think it absolutely does. And Pepe, how are you managing to fare in this time of trouble? Because I mean, you do tour guides for for tourists. There are not very many of them around at the moment. 
No, it's been pretty been pretty quiet around here, Mike. Um, I've done four or five jobs since the end of lockdown. What we a lot of us blue badges in London have been doing is online virtual tours. Yeah. So businesses that maybe are under restriction, a lot of art societies and WI women's institute groups who can't get out to visit museums. We've been bringing the museums to them and doing online virtual stuff, which has kind of been definitely filling a gap for a lot of people. Okay, well, good luck with it, Pepe, and thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us as ever. Pepe Martinez, London Blue Badge tour guide there, giving us all the lowdown uh, that you need to know about uh, Big Ben. Wouldn't it be amazing if it was named after a boxer? How extraordinary would that be? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.